0: Welcome to the Lab Life Podcast, a candid insight into the life of an undergraduate researcher. I'm your host, Richard Song. I'm an aspiring research scientist and undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University studying computer science, applied math, and neuroscience. In this series, I invite you along my weekly research journey and share lessons I've learned in the lab. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 5. On last episode, we mentioned that one of the best ways to overcome research hurdles to read as many papers as possible, but we didn't go into too much depth to how to actually do this efficiently and effectively. In part one, we will talk about strategies that you can use to get the most out of your paper reading process so that you can find inspiration for your research. In part two, we will continue on with my weekly updates at Boystown, which involve determining the actual neurological source of working memory activity. So without further ado, let's discuss. Almost every single research paper that you will read, I guarantee will include these five different parts. The introduction, the methods, the results, the discussion, and the conclusion. Understanding each one of these five parts and what their purpose serves is important for optimizing the efficiency that you read papers. So let's go into a little bit of depth into what each of these five sections mean. Starting with the introduction. Every introduction will contain what is called a literature review, where the authors of this current paper essentially review the existing literature or papers about the subject that they're exploring their research on. They'll talk about how other authors who conducted similar experiments conducted their experiments, their findings, how they interpreted their findings, but most importantly, they're going to talk about the limitations of other studies, what the other studies didn't address. With that, they will segue to their own experiment. And their own experiment is looking to fill those limitations of other authors. They're going to talk a little bit about what they hope to find out of their experiment, as well as what they hypothesize their experiment will reveal. So that's the introduction. In a lot of introductions, you're going to see plenty of paper citations. And In case you want to go into further analysis after reading one paper, a really good idea would be to look at the other citations that the introduction has to look at very similar papers and how they conducted their experiments. The next session is methods. Methods is very important because it tells you how specifically the authors conducted a study so that in case you want to replicate their experiment, you can do so very clearly. And that is by reading the methods section. So if you want to replicate their experiment, if you want to conduct some similar experiments, always be sure to understand the methods section. Next is the results. This is pretty self-explanatory. Essentially, the results display what the authors found, any of their significant findings of their experiments. The results will also usually contain a lot of graphs, and these graphs will contain these blurbs underneath that go into more depth about what the graphs mean and what specifically they're trying to say. Next is the discussion section. The discussion section is usually the longest section in every paper, and that's because the authors are trying their best to interpret their results. This is really complicated, because results themselves are just numbers, but numbers don't necessarily tell a story very clearly. And in the discussion section, the authors are trying to tell a story with those numbers. What do they actually reveal? What scientific findings do these numbers, do these statistics help us conclude? That's the discussion section. Similar to the introduction section, the discussion will also cite a lot of papers, because the author will pull upon what other papers in different domains have interpreted their results to be, authors will interpret, will pull from those papers to interpret their own results. So again, if you want to look at similar papers or go into more in-depth about a specific area, I recommend looking at the citations in the discussion section. And finally is the conclusion section. For beginners and for people just starting with research, I highly recommend that you start with the conclusion section for almost every paper. And that's because the conclusion section is essentially a small summary about what the introduction, the methods, the results, and the discussion found. And if you want to have a general gist about what the paper is about and whether it is a paper that you want to invest your time into reading, i recommend first starting with the conclusion section. Alright, those are the five sections of every paper. The introduction, the methods, results, discussion, and conclusion. As I mentioned earlier, Understanding what these five sections do is important for maximizing the efficiency in which you read your papers. What I would say is that reading every paper from head to toe, from introduction all the way to conclusion in that order is usually not very efficient. And that's because when you're reading papers, you're always going to be at a particular stage of your research. And at that stage, you have certain priorities, for example, You might be at the stage in which you're just starting research, or you might be already having your findings already, and you want to interpret those findings. Whatever it is, you are at a different stage of your research and that entails that you have different priorities. What I would recommend is that based on the stage that you're at, you start or you prioritize reading a certain section when you are looking at these papers. For example, if you're stuck coming up with an experimental paradigm, meaning you don't know what experiments you want to conduct and how to take your analysis further from there, I would recommend that you start with the methods section. This is actually what I did a lot this week at Boystown because I was in the middle of conducting my experiments, and I wanted to make sure that the experiments that I were conducting were legitimate and would yield actual results. And that meant that I had to read a lot of papers on MEG and working memory and saw how they conducted their experiments, and that started with the methods section. If you're stuck coming up with the project in the first place, let's say that you just matched with your PI and you're excited to do research but you don't really know where to begin, I would highly recommend reading the introduction and the discussion. The introduction because of the literature review. It gives you a good sense about what similar projects are saying, and the discussion largely because it will contain further limitations that the authors have identified themselves. And these further limitations, as I mentioned earlier, are a great place to start your actual research yourself, address the further limitations that other authors have identified in the past. Maybe you're unsure about whether your results seem feasible. If that's the case, then you should definitely start with the results section, just to see if your results have been replicated by other studies in the past. Or if you're unsure about what your results mean, if they are significant, but you want to interpret them, then obviously start with the discussion section of papers. The point is that whatever stage of research that you are on, you will have different priorities. And it's important that with these different priorities, in order to maximize your paper reading efficiency, you start with different section of the papers. So one example that I would like to provide to support this idea is my research at Vanderbilt. My research at Vanderbilt was looking at how different physiological factors such as breathing and heart rate impact the functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI bold signals, so the signal that's coming out of fMRI readings. I was looking at how that correlated with different physiological signals and how that correlation changes with age. So to come up with my overall project idea, I've read the introduction of a lot of papers. For example, a lot of papers that I read in the past had mentioned that physiological signals, such as breathing and heart rate, really caused the bold signals of fMRI to be inaccurate. It kind of blurred out the bold signal, and this was an area of research that was really important. I got that information from reading introductions of papers. And then I got the idea to correlate age with how physiological data impacts bold because the discussion section of papers had mentioned that we need to look at how age may affect this relationship between physiological data and fMRI data. At Vanderbilt, when I specifically wanted to see what sort of analyses that I wanted to conduct, for example, when I was looking at the respiratory response function, which relates the physiological data, and the BOLD, when I wanted to look at the traits of the respiratory response function, I read the methods section of other papers. And specifically from reading methods, I understood that certain features of the respiratory response function, or RRF, such as the peak amplitude, the trough, the time it took to get to that peak amplitude, and the time it took to get to that minimum trough were important factors to look at. And I got that from reading the methods section of papers. When I wanted to verify that what I had made sense, for example, when I saw that among younger participants, the peak of the RF was higher than that of older participants, when I wanted to verify that, I read the results sections of other papers. And they also found similar things among different features, such as the HRF or the hemodynamic response function, which has a similar shape to the respiratory response function. But they found similar things, and that gave me a lot of comfort because it told me that my findings were likely correct. And finally, when I wanted to interpret my findings, when I wanted to explain why it is specifically that younger participants had a higher peak amplitude in their RF than older participants, I looked at the discussion section of other papers. And specifically, they told me that the vasculature or the size of the blood vessels in the brain and that of the lungs had a very big determining factor on how much of an impact breathing would have on fMRI bold signals. And I got that information from reading the discussion section. And by understanding all of those, by Understanding my project idea, and the specific analysis that I wanted to conduct, and verifying my results, and interpreting my results. I was able to write a report on my findings a lot more smoothly. And that happened by reading papers in an efficient manner. Last episode, I also alluded to the fact that in order not to burn out while reading papers, you want to read papers actively. And I'm going to go into more depth about how it is exactly that you should do this. What I strongly recommend is that for all of the papers that you are reading for your particular project, you keep an Excel sheet that highlights certain important features of the papers that you are reading. For example, this Excel sheet should have headers for every paper that include the author of the papers, the journal, titles, year, the type of analysis that they conducted, and some quotes or summaries of the paper. That way, you keep all of your papers that you're reading organized and you know exactly what it is that you got out of every paper. Also very important is that when you're reading papers, you highlight and make annotations about anything that's important that you read. This may seem like a really big burden at first. Obviously, keeping all of this information in an Excel sheet and highlighting and making annotations as you go will seem like a hassle. It takes a lot more time than just passively reading a paper. But trust me, it is worth it. It is worth it because you will know exactly what you got out of every paper, what it is from every paper that you found most important, and how that impacts your research itself. And when you know that, in the long run, your research will be much more smooth. Even though it takes more time in the short run, in the long term, everything will work out a lot better. Also, it helps when you set small goals for yourself. When you set a goal such as read one paper or two papers every day, then you will work to that goal, because naturally, we as humans are goal-oriented people. So if you set those goals for yourself to just read one or two papers every day, you're more incentivized, you're going to be more incentivized to achieve those goals and to actually highlight and take notes on the paper so that you extract what's the most crucial information out of that paper is. I want to end part one off of something that I learned this summer that I didn't actually use at Vanderbilt, but this one technique that I used this summer has saved me so much time and effort when reading papers. And that is using a reference manager. A reference manager is a particular application that helps you organize and keep track of the papers that you've read so far. Now, the three most common reference managers that researchers will use are EndNote, Mendeley, and Zotoro. Each one has its own benefits and drawbacks. The industry standard for reference management is EndNote, and that's because EndNote by far is the easiest to export citations, and allows you to have the most customized ability with your citations, and allows you to stay the most organized. The problem is, however, that EndNote is a pretty expensive application. So personally, I use Mendeley, and I find that Mendeley works perfectly fine for me. A, it's free. B, it allows me to annotate and highlight a PDF right on the application. So the next time I pull up that that PDF, I can see all my annotations and highlights. C, it still allows for easy exporting of citations so that when I'm writing a paper, all I have to do to include an in-text citation and a bibliography citation is press a button. Although it's not as easy to do in bulk as it would be in EndNote, it's still very good and allows me to just include a citation with a click of a button. And finally, Mendeley allows me to categorize my citations for group. So for example, I can make a group called Boystown and that allows me to keep all of my annotations for Boystown. And when I get back to Vanderbilt, I will make a group called Vanderbilt and that will allow me to keep all of my research for Vanderbilt in that one group. So there's some level of organization there and it's very easy to use. So just briefly to summarize part one, when you're reading papers, it's important to understand the different sections of the papers. When you're stuck with coming up with your experiment in the first place, I recommend looking at the methods section. When you're stuck coming up with a project and need some ideas about where to start, the introduction and the discussion, specifically the further limitations, is a great way to go. If you're unsure about whether your results seem feasible and you want to make sure that you're replicating other studies, then the results is where you should start. And if you're unsure about what your results mean and you want to interpret them, look at the discussion. When you're reading your papers, it's important to be active. Keep an Excel sheet, and make sure to highlight and make annotations per every paper. In the short term, this may seem like a hassle, but in the long term, it will all pay off when you know exactly what the most important information is from every paper. Set small goals for yourself, such as reading one or two papers every day, so that this process becomes smoother. And finally, make sure to use a reference manager. This allows you to keep your citations organized, and also allows it so that if you're writing a paper in the future, one click of a button allows you to insert that citation right there. You're listening to part two of the Lab Life podcast, where I discuss my weekly highlights and findings at the Boystown National Research Hospital Institute for Human Neuroscience. Now, before I begin this section, I want to start with the disclaimer. What I'm about to talk about is going to include a lot of very niche neuroimaging techniques that will probably involve a lot of terminology that you may not be familiar with. But I will try my best to simplify it all down as much as possible. Alright, so with that disclaimer out of the way, let's begin. So just to recap, last week I did what's called bias correction. And what this means is that I chose specific sensors on the MEG as well as epochs or trials of the Sternberg task in which the MEG data for that sensor or for that trial was an outlier. And I removed all of those data from the rest of the data set. Then for bias correction, I saw specifically if the channels and the number of trials that I've removed Correlated with the stimulation type for TDCS, whether that was TDCS on the left parietal lobe, right parietal lobe, or SHAM, placebo. This is important because if I saw that there was some sort of correlation, that would add bias to my data. And I wanted to make sure that the trial, the outlier trials and channels that I've removed, were not going to impact my data. Fortunately, I found that no such bias existed. So with this bias correction done, now I can do something called sensor space analysis. And what this means is that we are looking at for every sensor on the MEG machine, there are roughly 300 or so sensors. For every sensor, I'm trying to see whether there are specific chunks of that data that are significant. So my experiment specifically is a task-based experiment. In the task, the participants are first going to rest at what's known as a baseline. This baseline is just their normal resting brain activity. And then they're induced with a task, specifically the Sternberg working memory task. And when they're shown this task and when they're performing this task, their brain waves will change. And the MEG sensors will pick that up. So what I'm looking at is specifically in sensor space analysis, I'm looking at which sensors detected significant brain activity change relative to baseline. So first, in order to do sensor space analysis, I have to do something called time frequency analysis. What this means, I talked about this in the first episode, but in case that you don't remember, what this means is that for every sensor I have to do something called a Fourier transform. And this Fourier transform turns the sensor data, which is a 2D time series representing time on the x-axis and the amplitude of the magnetic field on the y-axis. I have to turn this 2D time series into a 3D time frequency spectrogram. And essentially what the time frequency spectrogram looks like is on the x-axis, there is time. On the y-axis, there's the frequency of the magnetic field. And on the z-axis, there's the amplitude of the magnetic field at that particular frequency. It's a little bit difficult to visualize 3D things in our specific software that we're using. So the time-frequency spectrogram looks more like a heat map where high amplitudes on the z-axis are represented in the color red and low amplitudes in the z-axis, or negative amplitudes even, are represented in the color blue. So for every sensor, we did a Fourier transform to turn a 2D time series into a 3D time frequency spectrogram. And the important part is the frequency aspect. We want to see which specific frequency bands, whether that's theta, alpha, beta, or gamma, we want to see which frequency bands are significant. So now that we have a 3D time frequency spectrogram for every sensor, we will conduct a series of t-tests for those time frequency spectrograms. And these t-tests allow us to see which specific frequency bands are significant relative to baseline. So for example, we found that the frequency band denoted by the encoding, which is roughly an alpha frequency, so around 8 to 15 hertz, and through the encoding phase was significant. There is a strong desynchronization in alpha, meaning that the power or amplitude of alpha was lower than that of baseline. So just to summarize sensor space analysis, In sensor space analysis, for every sensor in the MEG we are doing Fourier transforms to turn 2D time series into 3D time frequency spectrograms, so that for every sensor we can see which particular frequency time bands are significant. And we found that in a lot of sensors, in particularly the occipital cortex, as well as like left lateralized areas in the brain, so sensors in the left hemispheres, we saw statistically significant changes in frequency time bands relative to baseline. And those particular bands included the one that I just mentioned, that encoding alpha desynchronization, roughly zero to 2000 milliseconds, and from eight to 15 Hertz, that was the one band. The second band that we saw that was significant was an alpha synchronization, which was very red in the time frequency spectrogram, an alpha synchronization in the maintenance phase, so roughly 2,000 to 5,000 milliseconds, and I wanna say around 10 to 13 Hertz. That was also significant. And we also saw a little bit of significant activity in the theta band, roughly three to six Hertz in the encoding phase roughly 200 milliseconds all the way to around 1800 milliseconds. So those were the specific frequency bands that we saw were significant in certain sensors. It's also important to note that this information, these frequency bands of interest, are replicated in the literature. Through reading a lot of papers regarding working memory, I found that other researchers also concluded that these specific bands that I just mentioned were significant when doing a verbal working memory task. So that gave me a lot of comfort in knowing that my time frequency analysis was most likely correct. Alright, so from time frequency analysis, from sensor space analysis, we can conclude that in certain sensors we have these time frequency bands that are significant. However, one thing that's important to note is that MEG does not have good spatial resolution on the subcortical levels. What this means is that although a sensor that's lying above a cortex area, for example, might denote that there's significant activity there, That does not necessarily mean that there's good activity in the cortex, because that is a cortical level, that's just on the outside of the brain. Maybe the activity is actually occurring right under the cortex, so that's a subcortical level, but the MEG sensor itself can't necessarily pick that up. So we need to do some sort of analysis that tells us what specific brain region, whether that's cortical or subcortical, is having the significant activity based upon significant activity that's denoted by the sensors. In other words, we want to go from significant sensor activity to significant source activity or brain area activity. And the way that we do this is a pretty complicated process that is called beamforming, and I'll do my best to explain beamforming as simple as possible. With beamforming, I like to think of it in two processes, the where process and the what process. The where process tells us where in the brain exactly is this activity coming from, and the what process is telling us what exactly are the brain oscillatory dynamics that are associated with this sensor reading. Alright, let's start with the WHERE. The WHERE aspect of beamforming tells us where in particular a certain brain activity is occurring based on a sensor's reading. So, to solve this problem of WHERE the brain activity is occurring, we will make one critical assumption. And that assumption is that for every MEG sensor, all areas of the brain are impacting that sensor but to different extents. Areas of the brain, or voxels like 3D pixels, voxels of the brain that are closer to a particular sensor will impact that sensor more than voxels farther away. Sensors that are directly over the occipital cortex, for example, will be mostly impacted by occipital activity, more so than prefrontal activity, for example. All right. So with that assumption, we can generate something called a lead field matrix and the lead field matrix uses a numerical representation to tell us how much of an impact a voxel's brain activity has on every sensor's activity. And the lead field matrix has dimensions given by the number of voxels times the number of sensors, where for every cell in this matrix that cell will represent how much of an impact a particular voxel's brain activity has on the sensors. So the key idea overall is that through the wear of beamforming through the lead field matrix, we get to know how sensitive a sensor is to a certain brain area's activity. And by doing this, we can help localize where in the brain a sensor's activity is actually occurring. So that is the where of forming. The next step is the what. So it would be inaccurate just to be like, oh, this particular brain area is the most probable for causing this sensor's activity. So we're just gonna say that this brain area has this sensor's activity. That's not correct because of the assumption that we said earlier and that every voxel in the brain will have an impact on every sensor just to varying amounts So although an occipital sensor will mostly represent an occipital voxel, that occipital sensor is picking up, for example, prefrontal activity. And in order to actually denote the activity in the occipital voxel, we have to filter out the prefrontal activity. And that's done by something called a spatial filter. Now, I'm not going to go into too much depth about how the spatial filter is computed, because it involves a lot of linear algebra and vector calculus. But essentially, once we derive the field matrix, we can do some complicated mathematics to get the spatial filter. And the purpose of the spatial filter is to selectively remove out brain activity that is less important it will take the occipital's brain activity and remove out prefrontal activity all right if you understand those two parts the where and the what you essentially understand 90 percent of what beam forming entails it takes a specific sensor's activity it localizes where that activity is occurring the where and then it filters out all irrelevant activity from other parts of the brain that's the what. After these two steps, we can arrive at something called a pseudo T map. And the pseudo T map not only shows us where in the brain particular significant activity is occurring, but also the degree to which that activity is occurring, whether it's very, very active or not as active. And that's the pseudo T map. And by looking at that pseudo T map, we can depict how brain activity changes over time. And from those pseudo maps, I was able to determine that the alpha desynchronization activity that's associated with encoding first starts in the occipital cortex and then gradually moves its way forward to the parietal and slowly to the temporal cortex. So that overall summarizes what I did for this week. I first did sensor level analysis to determine which frequency bands in every sensor were significant. And from that, I did beamforming, or what's known as source level analysis, to determine where exactly it is that this brain activity was occurring and what was that brain activity. From that, I arrived at pseudo pseudotmaps, which allowed me to visually depict that activity in the brain and see how it changes over time. So for next week, I'm going to be analyzing how specific patterns of brain activity change among different stimulation types. So how do those pseudo maps differ between the TDCS and the parietal left, parietal right, and sham? So thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Lab Life Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever platform you're tuning in from. So long for now, and I'll see you next week.